is a joy to be with you and be able to open up God's Word with you. And I'm deeply grateful for this invitation to preach. I was telling uh, your pastor last night, um, it's been since uh, June since I've uh, preached in a local church. Uh, as uh, Blake mentioned, I pastored uh, Oak Park Baptist Church in Jeffersonville, Indiana, a pillar church. And uh, we have uh, moved here to uh, Fort Worth, Texas. I know this is Abilene, but we have moved to Fort Worth to join uh, the work going on at uh, Southwestern Baptist and Texas Baptist College. But uh, there is nothing like being in the local church and just being up here, hearing your voices sing and praising our Savior. It has warmed uh, my soul, I'm sure my family's soul. And so thank you. Uh, for letting me come to open up God's Word. And it's good to be here on the second uh, Sunday of Advent. And uh, during this season, as we think of Christ's coming, I want us to consider the mystery of Christ coming into the world from Isaiah 7, 14. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Isaiah 7. Those pages rustling, that's a good sound. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Here's the word of the Lord. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Lord, may you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. His words were first spoken not to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. They're first spoken to King Ahaz in 733 BC. King Ahaz was facing political turmoil. In fact, Syria had teamed up with the northern kingdoms of Israel and had seen that Ahaz and the tribe of Judah and the southern kingdom were weary from battle and war, that they were vulnerable, and they had teamed up together to siege Jerusalem. And so Ahaz, in the face of this political threat, along with all of his kingdom, Isaiah tells us, they shook as trees in the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz and his people are terrified because they know their dire situation. They know they are hopeless. Nevertheless, it is in these moments when we come to the end of ourselves that God shines his good news. He shines his glory. He shines his mercy 
and grace. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz as he's literally shaking in his boots. And he is sent to him to bring him good news. While Ahaz is facing a military defeat, he's facing dethronement. Isaiah declares to him in verse 4, Be careful, Ahaz. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. Why? Because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands are nothing before the Lord. The plans of these two nations, as they are are surrounding Jerusalem, threatening to take over his kingdom... Isaiah comes and says, they're nothing. They're absolutely nothing before the Lord, the God Almighty, the one who has promised that David's throne will never end. In fact, verse 7 of our text tells us, the Lord says, their plans shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Isaiah then proceeds to explain that God himself will bring these two political foes to swift destruction. He says in verse 9, however, to Ahaz and his people, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, salvation is at hand. God's good news of deliverance is right before you. However, This salvation is only for those who put their trust in him. This salvation is only for those who believe in God's promises. For Ahaz, he does not believe. He does not ultimately trust. In fact, Looming in the background of this text is 2 Kings 16. You might just want to note that. Read it in your Sunday afternoon devotional. But what lies behind this text is the fact that Ahaz rejects the promise of God through Isaiah and seeks to find security in the pagan nation of Assyria. He does not believe the promise of God's deliverance, but rather entrusts himself to the world to bring about his deliverance. And so it is within this context that we see here in Isaiah 7 that we find this prophecy concerning Christ our Savior. Isaiah comes to Ahaz again and says, Ahaz... Why don't you ask the Lord for a sign that confirms that his promises are sure? He says, in fact, you can ask for a sign that that reaches to the highest of heaven or goes to the depths of the earth. Whatever it may be, ask and the Lord will show you that he is faithful. Nevertheless, Ahaz refuses. In fact, this moment of refusal in, in essence, seals his heart, hardens his heart, seals his, or sears his conscience. No longer will I, uh, Isaiah say to Ahaz, call upon our God. From this point on, Isaiah will say, call upon my God. Because of this moment, because he will not heed the message of the Lord. But nevertheless, Isaiah reaches out one more time and, and says, ask for a sign. 
But Ahaz says, I will not ask, verse 12. I will not put the Lord to the test. You see the, the false piety? He's determined. He, is, he has sought the Lord's deliverance through pagan means. He's not humble enough to rest in the word of God. And so he, he, he says, I'm, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, even though the Lord's commanded him. Ask me a sign, and I'll do it. Nevertheless, the Lord gives him a sign anyway, and this is our text. The Lord gives you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the immediate context of this passage, the sign of this miraculous birth is nevertheless mysterious, isn't it? It's mysterious. For as Isaiah goes on to explain, he says in verse 16 that before this child reaches maturity in Ahaz's day, the two political threats will be deserted. Furthermore, because Ahaz has entrusted himself to Assyria, Assyria itself will be an agent of judgment upon the house of David. And they too will turn against him. God will bring judgment, Isaiah says, upon the house of David, leveling it, Isaiah says, down to a stump. And In fact, he, he talks about it as a remnant. Few survivors may be left. Isaiah says, if the Lord had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, God is going to do something remarkable, even through judgment on the house of David. Out of that stump, Israel is likened to a tree, and God's going to chop that tree down in judgment. Yet, there will be a stump left. There will be a stump. There will be something there. And out of that stump, God promises, I will rebuild the house of David. I will fulfill all my promises to bring about a new creation where sin will be no more, righteousness abounds, and I will dwell with my people once again. The mysterious aspect of this text, nevertheless, that there seems to be a near fulfillment of Isaiah's words in Ahaz's day, but a future fulfillment yet to come. On the one hand, there seems to be a, a miraculous birth of some sort that we, we aren't exactly clear how this sign is fulfilled in this day. Perhaps it is of Isaiah's son born in chapter 8, verse 3, where this son will be a sign of Israel's near deliverance from these immediate threats, but future exile. But certainly it could not be fully fulfilled in these with all the other promises that come together. And so on the other hand, it looks beyond this moment to the rise and fall of many when the Christ should arrive. And we now see, standing as new covenant believers, we can look back and see all that was hidden, that which was cloaked in mystery in the Old Testament is is made clear to us in the New Testament. We know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, while we are not today, Old Testament Israel facing political threats from surrounding nations, the promise of this prophecy comes to us even as we face a far greater threat. The threat 
of eternal damnation due to our sins. Yet God has good news for us. Death has lost its sting. Sin has been defeated. Wrath has been satisfied. God has made atonement for our sins. Maybe today you are like Ahaz and you look at your life and it is as if uh, Syria and, and, and your closest friends have turned against you. You see your sin and the effects and the consequences staring you in the face. And to hear the good news, it is, it is hard to believe that just the word of the Lord will deliver me. Yet our God has himself provided a sign for us. A sign, in fact, a signal has been sent. That he has made good on his promises. He has sent his son, born of the Virgin Mary, who has saved his people from their sins. And so just as Ahaz was called to stand firm in faith in God's promise of deliverance, how much more should we stand firm? As God's greater promise of salvation in Christ has been offered to us. And so to this end, this morning and the time that we have, I I first want us to consider the sign which God has given us in Christ, the sign which calls us to faith in God's promise. My first uh, point is that you may have faith, stand firm in faith in God's promise. Now ultimately, the sign given here in Isaiah 7.14, we know, finds its fulfillment in Christ. And we know that because, well, Matthew's gospel tells us that, right? Just as Ahaz was instructed not to fear the threats or his circumstances, the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and you see the parallel? It says, do not fear the circumstances. All the things that he is worried about is, can you imagine an engaged man and his, his bride-to-be comes to him and says, hey, I know it's, I want to tell you it's not what it looks like, but I'm pregnant. <laughs> okay, what, what doesn't it look like? <laughs> And Joseph thinks, the only, only thing I can do is divorce her quietly to, to somehow guard her from the shame. And, and the angel of the Lord says, I've got a better plan. Do not fear. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Well, Isaiah himself elaborates on the significance of this child, does he not? Elaborates on this one to come, this one who, who certainly transcends the circumstances of Ahaz. If you go over just to Isaiah chapter 9, God promises uh, to give a son. That unto us, verse 6, a child will be born, a son given, a son of David. And, and this son, this Davidic king, this, this ruler, the government shall be upon his shoulder... And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And unlike Ahaz and all the kings who have gone before him, the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
In other words, Isaiah is saying the, the, the full significance of this sign, of this child to come, God is going to fulfill all his promises, all his covenant promises. Specifically his promises to David where he will establish his kingdom on earth, vanquish sin forever, bring peace upon the earth, and dwell with us again. God promises through his son. What will they result? Just as the children sang, joy to the world, right? Joy to the world. God's blessings will flow as far as the curse is what? Found. Isaiah tells us that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon this one. Giving him wisdom to judge, to to bring about true equity on the earth. Furthermore, when this child comes, the reversal of the curse will even transform the creation itself. Remarkable things that we can't even imagine, like the wolf and the lamb lying together. Or imagine gathering all the children at the cobra's den, (laughs) and they will not be hurt. Let me ask you, does this all just sound too good to be true? That my sins can be forgiven. That there would be one who would come and actually bring true equity to the earth. One who will, who will wipe away all my shame, clear all my guilt, restore all my wrongs, and make everything all right. Is it too good? Too good to be true? On the surface, it, I'll admit in my fleshly heart, it says... I want it to be true. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, right? As the hymn writer writes, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so like Ahaz, we're often tempted to turn to that which we may see, to worldly securities that give us the illusion that we're safe from the realities of death. But we come and we gather Sunday after Sunday. And we gather this Sunday of Advent to be reminded that God has given us a sign and a son. A signal for the peoples that we should inquire of him. And that through the coming of Christ, God himself has confirmed these promises. It's better than you can imagine. It's better And he's confirmed these promises to us. He has demonstrated his love for us. You need to be reminded of God's love for you now. You look to the cross in the past. You look to him sending his son. You look to John 3.16. And we can be confident that what he has begun, the new work of the creation, the down payment of the spirit, what he has begun in you who believe, He will complete on the day of Christ Jesus. And so we are called this morning, my friends, to stand firm in this good news, the good news of the sign, of God's promises in Christ. But the sign also calls us to faith in God's power in Christ. Yes, his promises are firm, they are committed to us, but he's also able He's powerful. And so point number two, I want to call you to faith in God's power. 
Now, God in this text does the miraculous, right? Does the miraculous. And just think about how God has done what is unthinkable many times among women who were unable to give birth in the Old Testament. You, you might think of Sarah and the birth of Isaac, right? Or Rachel and the birth of Jacob, or Hannah and the birth of Samuel. We, we've seen through the storyline of Scripture time and time again women who, whose wombs are closed, yet God overcomes the curse. But when we come to the New Testament, we come to the fulfillment of this text. When we come to Mary, God opens the womb of a woman who's never even known a man. It's far greater than everything that was anticipating this a moment before. And in doing so, God demonstrates His creative power through the Spirit to give life. Our God is life-giving God. Everything else does not have life in it. All life comes from him. As the angel of the Lord declared to Joseph, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Now Matthew's language here is, is very careful. And how he describes the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. Mary is conceived from the Holy Spirit, not by the Holy Spirit. Now you might say that's a little semantical difference that doesn't make much difference. And in fact, even in our creeds and confessions, we use the preposition by. But I think that the text is careful so as not to confuse with any Greek or pagan legends whereby the gods have intercourse with a human mother to bring forth their divine offspring. This isn't what's going on. No, Mary is truly a virgin in every sense of the term. And yet, Jesus is truly human, though he has no earthly father. Jesus is presented to us here like a new Adam. He's born in the likeness of men, yet he was not made, though. He's better than Adam. He was eternally begotten from the Father. As the early church has expressed the mystery of the incarnation, we learn that Jesus is of the same essence and the same substance of the Father. So in every sense, Jesus is truly God. Yet, having been born of Mary, he's also truly man, sharing all the same characteristics of humanity that you and I have. So as we consider the incarnation, we must keep in mind that that Jesus isn't two beings. He's not some schizophrenic, one God and one human. Neither is he like Superman, a, 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 a mixture of the divine and the human. No, but having both a divine and human nature, J.R. Packer writes, all the qualities and power that are in us, as well as all the qualities and the power that are in God, were, are, and ever will be really and distinguishably present in the one person of the man, Christ Jesus. And so with the saints throughout history, we confess Christ's 
is God's only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We sing this time of year, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Brothers and sisters, the incarnation is the sign of God's divine power that he is able to save. Save to the uttermost. Not only confirms his promises that he's able to save us from our sin, but get this, the incarnation, the sign not just points to salvation, it is our salvation. It is the means by which God has saved us from our sins. And so in the power of God, Christ has come to save sinners by assuming a human nature like ours and being obedient to death on a cross. And so this leads us to our final point, where I want to call us to faith in God's presence. Through the incarnation, God and Christ has come to dwell with us. And so we must put our faith that God is near. Now for us, the names that we are each given have meaning, right? Sometimes it's fun to look them up and find out what your name means. But I venture to guess that for all of us, none of us lives up to the meaning of our name completely, right? In some cases, it's like, yeah, I'm the total opposite. Like in my case, my name is Chase. My name means Hunter. Sounds awesome, except I've never killed anything. And those who know me would never confuse me as a hunter. I just, I've never done it. If you count fishing, I, I've done that. But I'm not a hunter. I don't live up to my name, do I? My wife's name is Sarah. And her name means princess. Now, in my eyes, she's a princess. But to you guys, you're like, eh, I mean, she's cool. You know, there, there's no, there's little city. If she doesn't fulfill, you wouldn't say, oh, we had a princess in our midst today. Kind of weird, right? Well, Jesus is given a name, which he bears the qualities in the fullest sense. He's given the name Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. And through the incarnation, Jesus perfectly lives out the reality of that name. God in Christ has come to dwell among us. He is the Word made flesh who has come to make the invisible God visible. By assuming a human nature like ours, He has come not just to come for a little bit. You know, Jesus didn't just visit earth. He dwelt among us. Today, I'm, I'm a guest. Um, if some of you came to me and said, we'd love for you to dwell in our home. Say, hey, you know, it's great knowing you. It's a little too soon to do that. But if you were to say, hey, we'd love for you guys to visit sometime. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Jesus didn't come to visit. He came to dwell. He came to dwell with us. 
And even in his ascension, as we, as we said in the New City Catechism, he has arisen. And because he's gone away, he has sent his spirit who tabernacles, who dwells in us. In us. And so he can say, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. God in Christ has come to dwell among us. He is the word made flesh who has come to make the invisible God visible. And he has assumed a nature like ours. He has come to identify with us in every way, yet being free from sin so that he could be a perfect substitute. Furthermore, this means that Jesus, he sympathizes with your and my weaknesses because he's experienced what we have experienced. In fact, he's lived the full course of life from birth to death to life again. As a man, he grew weary. He grew tired. He'd be hungry. As a child, he was nursed from his mother's breast and he grew up to be an adult. He had a body like you do. Not only that, Jesus would grow up physically, but he also mentally. He would grow in wisdom. He would learn the scriptures. I, I think we often think that just he came pre-downloaded with the whole Bible memorized. No, he had to learn. The divine son of man had to learn. Jesus shared emotion as he wept. He was angered. He showed love. He was disappointed and he was troubled in his soul. Yet in this way, by identifying with sinful humanity, Christ could be our substitute on the cross. Being treated as if he had lived our lives so that by faith, God may treat us as if we had lived his. So this Advent, we are reminded that God has given us a sign. He's given us a signal in his Son that he is committed, and that he is able to keep his promises of salvation to everyone who believes. And just as heaven came down in the person of Christ 2,000 years ago, so now we look forward to the day in which he returns, and heaven and earth are united forever. And a new creation, where we will dwell with him, we will see him face to face, and the curse will be no more. It's in these truths, my friends. These truths of God's promises in Christ, God's power in Christ, and God's presence in Christ. That we must stand firm or we will not stand firm at all.